Welcome to Gut Feelings, a Rome Foundation Drossman Care podcast series. I'm your host, Johanna Ruddy. On this monthly podcast series, Dr. Drossman and I discuss topics related to IBS and other disorders of gut-brain interaction, the diagnosis and treatment of these conditions, as well as improving the patient-provider relationship through effective communication skills, empathy, and support. Additionally, we bring on some of our favorite people, leaders in the area of gastroenterology and motility, including dietitians, GI behavioral health therapists, and gastroenterologists to discuss the latest data, science, and optimal clinical management. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Gut Feelings podcast episode with Dr. Drossman and myself. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, someone who's become a good friend to both Dr. Drossman and myself over the past year or so, and that is Wendy Boosie. She is a registered dietitian, and she specializes in working with GI patients um, who have food hypersensitivity. She's been doing this work for about 25 years now and um, doing some great stuff in this field. And so we're excited to talk to her a little bit about this and, and what, um, food hypersensitivity is, how it can relate to, um, to patients who are on restrictive diets and how it differs from ARFID and some of the other conditions that maybe are a little bit more well-known or getting, gaining some, some traction in the field. Wendy is a registered dietitian, as I said, specializing in food sensitivity. Um, Her focus is really helping GI patients to live well when they're on a restricted diet, but expand their diet. And her interest goes beyond the science and, and more into the emotional aspects of coping with food and GI symptoms. And over the past year, she developed an interesting program called the FAST Freedom Program, FAST standing for Food Avoidance and Sensitivity Trap, that's really working with um, GI patients and food-sensitive clients, helping them to rediscover the joy of eating and expand their diets. Um, So we're excited to talk to Wendy today. Hi, Wendy and Dr. Drossman. Hello to you as well. How are both of you? Hey, Johanna. Hey, Wendy. And just let me say, it's really nice to have you on because when we're dealing with diet, uh, in DGBIs in particular, we're having recommendations ranging from uh, speculation to science and alchemy. <laughs> and and that's what I, I'm so glad to have you on because I think we're going to hear the science end. And this is really important for the people who are on, on our podcast. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm glad to be here today. So Wendy, can you start by telling us a little bit about what drew you to dietetics and and how you began working with patients who have GI illnesses? Well, like a lot of my important life decisions, it was a whim decision. I can take a half an hour to decide between buying green socks or red socks, but then when it comes to the big decisions, it's like, bam. So I, you know, I can't even tell you exactly what drew me to dietetics. I was in my, my last semester of high school and I was planning to go into commerce and I was, I, I had a aptitude test, I think. And there was this thing called dietitian. And I thought that's, I read it. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And I dropped out of calculus because I needed calculus as a prerequisite to, to commerce and took foods and nutrition 10. And, and that was like 35 years ago. So it was kind of a, <laughs> a, a, a kind of a spontaneous decision. And, 
I've always been fascinated with that digestive tract. And I I still remember in science in grade seven, and I wasn't all that interested in science. I mean, we're talking about plants and then planets and this and that, and (laughs) I found it rather boring. And then I I can still remember the slide. If you remember back in the day when we had the overhead, overhead projectors. Yes, yes. um, overhead projector sheet thing that the the teacher put up with an outline of the digestive tract. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And yeah, since then through my training, I was always drawn to, you know, any study towards digestive illnesses or, or the function of the gastrointestinal tract. And then right off when I graduated within a year, I started specializing in food sensitivity. So of course, then that becomes part and parcel with working with people with digestive disorders. Yeah, that's really interesting. Where early on in your career, did you was there a specific mentor or someone who kind of helped draw you to to more focused on the food sensitivity component? Yeah, actually, I my first job I was working in a very small town, so I was doing everything from community to food service. Like it was an extremely generalized job, and it just yeah. wasn't a good fit. And I read an article by Dr. Janice Janaja. She's a PhD immunologist who became a dietitian and she worked at Vancouver General Hospital for a number of years. And I read an article and I was like, fascinating. And it was, I think a week later, she was speaking at a conference in Edmonton, which was near where I was working. And I went up to her and I said, do you, do you want a master's student for the fall? And she said, yeah. So Monday morning, I sent in an application. I was late, but they said, that's fine. And two or three months later, I was in Vancouver, working with wow. her. <laughs> Did I say like spontaneous decisions, right? Although like, you know, like a really an insignificant decision for some reason will take me forever. But <laughs> you know, it's interesting. It's usually the spontaneous ones that are the most impactful in terms of our direction or what comes to us um, later or next. And Dr. Drossman and I were having this similar conversation a few weeks ago when we were talking about um, you know, kind of how, how we arrived at where we are, right. And the decisions that we've made to get us to this point. And for me, it was like, I said to him, it's really about being open to new opportunities and not being, you know, being aware that when things come up, making those quick, sometimes quick decisions that can really alter the course of your life. I know that's what's happened for me in my career and brought me here to work with Dr. Drossman. And it's really interesting how that happens. And all of a sudden you're on a new course that you never imagined possible. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It has a lot to do with not holding back. You see an idea, you have to go for it. And a lot of times people are conditioned growing up. You can't do that or you'll never succeed. And if yes. that sticks in your mind, you won't go where you want to go. Yes. Yes. And I think that can change over time though, you know, because I did grow up in that capacity, as you both know, and being told that I wasn't able to do certain things. And, but at a certain point in my life, I made the conscious decision to say no to that conditioning, you know? Um, and I think that that could, that's an interesting point too. All right. So moving on, um, conditioning. So moving from conditioning behaviors to conditioning food sensitivity behaviors, um, what is conditioned food sensitivity, Wendy, um, and how and why does it affect patients who have GI symptoms in particular? So it conditioned food sensitivity is a term that I developed to, to label essentially and help explain a history that I was hearing repeatedly from clients. And that was 
a slippery slope, they often described, where they would start to restrict a few foods and then their sensitivities would become worse and it just went downhill from there. So I define conditioned food sensitivity as an unconsciously learned physical reaction to food. And so if we take a look at that definition, that unconsciously learned really is where the conditioning comes from, where it's so easy when you're you're suffering and you're not getting the answers that are helping you. It's so easy to get trapped into a lot of internet research, et cetera, where then you can start to create associations between symptoms and food. And that's really what's driving the whole thing. And that's where that unconscious learning comes from. And when you have, when you've developed those, those associations, then food can become a cue, a danger cue. And, you know, often it's the people talk about the limbic system, but it's probably beyond the limbic system. And I know Dr. Drossman, I'm kind of nervous saying this in front of you because I know you have a, a background in psychiatry. So I'm, I'm uh, as I'm talking, I'm like fact checking in my head to make sure I don't make any mistakes. So do jump in if I, if there's something yeah, to correct sure. me on, but, but yeah, we become, it becomes a danger cue. And then when you mm-hmm. eat that food or you even sometimes think about that food, that can put the body into fight, fight, or flight. Just like if you had a, a, you know, snakes were a danger cue and, and you saw a snake, you're going to have some physical reactions to that. So, so people then, you know, they food is a danger cue. They then have a physical reaction to that. And they interpret that as a food sensitivity reaction in terms of a, a physically driven reaction. And it is a reaction. It's just not a physically driven reaction. And then that reinforces forces the symptom food association and you just get this vicious cycle mm-hmm. turning and churning. So this you doesn't, know, Oh, go ahead. You know, um, in, in practice, we do see this concept of effort after meaning. And I want to see if we can separate out what I'm hearing sometimes from what you're saying, which is very rational. Um, sometimes a patient will say, I've got this stomach ache. And it's really bothering me. Now, how did that happen? Last night, I had fried chicken. That must be what's caused it. And here it is 18 hours later. Now, I see that as what's been called effort after meaning, that they're looking for an answer. But what you're talking about is something more proximate, more directly related. Do you get both of those kinds of things? And can you help the patient with that? Yeah. And I think they're very much related because I would say that these symptom food associations occur from, from unpleasant experiences with food. And one of a very common unpleasant experience is exactly what you had said, linking food. Oh, I've had this symptom. It must be, it must be the fried chicken. It must be the carrot, whatnot is then you're, you're in a sense, linking those two together And that is making an unpleasant experience, even though it didn't actually, it might, you know, it might've been the fried chicken. It might not have been the fried chicken. It doesn't actually in the end matter if it was or not, it's that association that has developed. And so I would say those two are very much related. Does that, am I explaining that correctly? Yeah. Well, what I hear you, I'm looking at it from the physiologic standpoint that if this occurred 18 hours ago, that's all gone. But, but you're saying that just making the association can have psychologically a conditioning effect that would sensitize you to respond to that food the next time. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so much research shows with, say, limbic system and beyond the limbic system, it's the whole paper tiger concept. It doesn't matter if that is a real danger or it's a perceived danger. The the limbic system interprets it the same. Right. So this is, this can happen in not just patients who have GI symptoms or GI illnesses, but patients who have any sort of physical reaction to food, correct? Because I'm just thinking about my son who had one adverse reaction to strawberries when he was three and now refuses to eat strawberries and breaks out in a rash at the thought of eating a strawberry. That's similar kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and this is this would be entirely theory. And Dr. Drossman, you would know so much more about this than I, but it, it's it's fascinating the, the little tiny bits of evidence that suggest that perhaps memory can can play a large role in that. You know, mm-hmm. but even if we look to say conditioned um taste avoidance is, you know, with um studies that have been done with those, it, it's not a condition, but um it's it's like when the body has gone through a certain process and there's a cue, it might go through the same process. And again, I'm not saying this is exactly what's happening because I don't have enough pieces of evidence to put it together to say this is what's happening, but it's a very, very interesting area of research, which some people are starting to really look into. You know, what you're getting into now is uh, the sensitization that can occur. Let's say someone has a traumatic experience and there's, they were just eating something or smelling something. Then in the future, that would trigger that kind of distress, just like when the experience occurred. Exactly. Or another example is if you threw, let's say you ate something and you threw up, chances are good when you look at it again, you're going to feel mm-hmm. nauseous. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, let me let me ask you this. So what if you did an experiment and you gave them the, the food that they're sensitive to and they weren't aware of it? Would they not respond? Yeah. Interesting. Probably not because, and you know, and, and a lot of times patients don't want to hear this, but most of the studies that have are double blinded when someone is I'm sensitive to X, Y, and Z, and it's done in it's double blinded. They don't have the reaction any more frequently to the, the active treatment food than to the, the placebo. Yeah. So Wendy, you started seeing patients that had, that were telling you these things, um, these fears and, and these sensitivities that they thought it, how did, how did this kind of evolve to the work that you're doing now and the program that you've set up now to really focus on this? Well, I started, so I've been in, in food sensitivity yeah, about 25, 30 years now. And then about 10 years ago, I started focusing on the low histamine diet because video conference counseling became a reality. It was, I had this sweet spot, the sweet spot between when it became a reality and the colleges shut us down that <laughs> we couldn't go out of our, our, out of our provinces. But um, so I had this beautiful sweet spot where I was seeing clients from all over the place. So I could really specialize in, in histamine intolerance. And that was the topic of my master's thesis back in the early 1990s. So what I was expecting with this is I would get clients coming in that were on a varied regular diet and I would help them restrict their diet to really try to pinpoint some foods. If indeed, if food was bothering them, and if it was like really try to pinpoint those foods, but the clients I would get that were coming to me were already on super restricted diets. So there, there wasn't, you can't, Oh, right. A person restricted diet. Who's already on a restricted diet. So (laughs) we started, I started helping clients expand and, 
and I'll, I'll be quite honest. Um, initially, I had very, very poor success. And if anybody's listening, that was an initial client. I, my, you know, I do sincerely apologize. But sometimes when you break into these new areas, it takes a while to learn, you know, what to do. But, and, but I would, it would be frustrating because, so. I had very little success with clients, but then people would come back. I remember as an example, one lady, she went to a course uh, with her through her church on fear. And I saw her two weeks later and she said, you know what? I have, I'm, I'm eating so much more. And it, it really actually bothered me. I, I was sort of like, what? Like I felt, just felt like I'm not helping people yet. This course helped people and what's going on. And I know there's something else I need to be doing, but I just couldn't put my finger on it. And then I had a client who I kind of was a very pivotal case in, in my, my history. And so she was down to eating chicken and rice and she had reflex symptoms and she had it firmly in her mind that her reflex was caused by food and was very scared because she felt she was allergic to everything. And eventually she, she would potentially starve or have to live with these devastating symptoms. And so I did my usual, I, I made up a, a, a reintroduction plan with her and she emailed back the next day and said, you know, I just can't do it. And so we then had this email conversation over about a week and it was around um, her physician had, had prescribed an H2 antagonist um, medication, ranitidine or, or something. I don't remember exactly what, but she was very afraid of it because in the low histamine diet community, there's a lot of fear mongering about this medication. So we really took an objective look at that, that, that fear mongering. And then she emailed and she said, you know what, if I'm only eating two foods and I'm still having symptoms, maybe it's not food. I'm going back on a regular <laughs> diet. And I'm like, Whoa, you can't go from like two food, like chicken and rice to a regular diet, but she did. And, and she, she was doing fine. And I think what happened was taking an objective look at the medication fear mongering helped her take it an objective look at the, the food fear mongering. And yeah. she realized that she actually didn't have food sensitivity. Now it doesn't mean she still had the reflux. So this, this wasn't a, a, the inter that intervention, which, you know, it wasn't my intervention. Actually, she intervened on her own kind of, but that intervention didn't cure the, the reflux, but she no longer had this overwhelming anxiety about food. And she was like loving to eat again. She was really, really um, having like just enjoying food. So, and I also want to caution people though, that that that's a, a bit of an extreme example because number one, she didn't have any physically driven food sensitivities. And number two, she had just gotten into the restriction. Like she'd only been restricting for a month or two. So she, her body was able to go from chicken and rice back to a regular diet. I, I strongly do not suggest any listeners do that because a, most people do actually have a combination of a physically as physically driven food sensitivities, and it's exacerbated by conditioned food sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And also if you're in it, if, if you've been restricting for a long time, your body just isn't in a place to process food anymore. So if you go from two foods to a, a regular, like a full diet, you probably will suffer some very severe symptoms. So um, just a, a caution that um, I, I give this example because it really illustrates it, but it's not, it's not for everybody to, to make that drastic jump. Sure. And, you know, I think, um, uh, again, I'm always referring back to patients because I see patients who are often pretty complex and sometimes they're down to baby food. Just every time 
they eat, they get a symptom. And this is where you would come in because what happens is I try to tell them that your GI symptoms are coming and going. And there are reasons why at times it could be occurring after a meal and not. And we don't know if it's related to the food or not. And that's where you would come in to do some kind of systematic approach to sort that out because otherwise people can get down to baby food just because they're getting symptoms because they have symptoms, not necessarily to what they're eating. Exactly. Like often, often I'll say is just the physiological process of eating a lot's happening there. And Mm -hmm. if your digestive system isn't functioning well, yeah, it's going to, you are, will get symptoms when you're eating. But exactly as you said, Dr. Drossman, it doesn't, that doesn't mean food hypersensitivity. Yeah. And and I'm talking about specific foods. I mean, we know that eating a meal causes distension of the stomach, release of chemicals, neuropeptides that stimulate the bowel and produce symptoms, but it may not be specific to a certain food. It might just be filling the stomach that's leading to their symptoms. And we have to sort that out from an actual food sensitivity. And, and with, after this patient that I saw the, what I realized then is where I was going wrong is I can't start, you know, off the square one clients can't start with a reintroduction plan. They first need to address the hypervigilance about food, the Mm. food symptom associations. And that's where the program came where now it's a, it's a three phase program where the first phase is softening the fast is, is the name of that phase where the person is is taking that objective look at how they got trapped, which helps them get untrapped and helps them see what's happening more clearly. Because exactly if if you haven't been eating a lot and you what would happen with the, the initial clients is they hadn't been eating a lot, they would reintroduce food, they would experience symptoms that would simply just reinforce that, that they have food sensitivity. Whereas if they're able to take a more objective look at what's happening, they might realize, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm eating this food for the first time. Yes, I have symptoms, but that's, that's part of the course of reintroducing food and then continuing on to the point where their system adjusts to it. Very interesting. Wendy, in this process, what do you think is the most difficult part or, or difficult um, habit for patients to break in this process? And, and how do you help them overcome their, their hypervigilance or their monitoring of their symptoms and restriction? I would say it's that, that symptom food association, which is tough. Once it gets ex- established, it's hard. And there's so much fear mongering out there, right? So, you know, you're, you're trying to, um, get a, uh, adopt a different perspective of food and you turn on their internet and there's gluten will kill you and, <laughs> and, you know, d- dairy will kill you too. <laughs> like, you know, there's all that fear mongering, right? So it's really, really tough. So the research into behavioral conditioning shows we're talking about extinction, extinction of the associations is that, that they do not simply go away is that they need to be replaced by another association. So we help clients replace the symptom food associations with pleasure food associations and a number of different ways. We, we don't have a, 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 you know, thou shalt ABCD, but a number of tools that clients can pick and choose from mm-hmm. a really good one. It's a tough one, but a good one is actually recalling positive experiences with food. When you have that negative association, 
with food, those, those traumatic or those unpleasant experiences that developed these negative associations. That's all you can think of when you see food, but there's often, there are pleasant experiences there, but you forget about them. So helping people remember, well, what was it like to, you know, eat that apple pie that you're that your grandma made. Um, we have clients, if, if they choose this tool, make a list and then consciously recall that. Mm-hmm. So we're really now getting into neuroplasticity. Um, visualization, positive visualization. So, you know, often experiences don't have to be, like we said, we can have negative experiences that aren't, didn't actually happen, but they happened more in our, our minds. So, you know, we, we read information, we made that association between the food and the symptom. Well, that's not actually happening, but again, with, with the limbic system, et cetera, it doesn't matter if it happened or not. So can we reverse that process where we're having positive experiences that we're visualizing? Um, a third along those same lines then is to notice positive experiences with food and to really sink into them. And over time then, it doesn't happen immediately overnight. This isn't, this isn't a quick fix. Like, you know, by Tuesday, you know, everything's better, (laughs) but over time that starts to replace those negative associations now with positive associations. You're doing what very much the same thing we have to deal with, with patients who say, I can't take that pill in one hour. I almost died. And then it's one pill after the other. And you're very restricted on what you can treat with because of their preconditioned um, anticipation of a response. Right. And, and, you know, the evidence I think for this is the nocebo effect. There's, there's lots of research. Uh, We don't have any research specifically in conditioned food sensitivity, but exactly what you're saying with the nocebo effect, there's, there's a lot of fairly strong research that if you perceive um, that something is going to have a physiological effect, there's a good chance it will. Right. Yeah. Very powerful. Placebo and nocebo are very powerful. There was a, an experiment done a couple of, a few decades ago uh, by a guy named Field, who was a dentist who infused IV to the his subject uh, morphine and told him it was placebo and placebo and told them it was morphine. And what do you think the response was? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's staggering, the power of our minds. Yeah. For those, who, for those out there, the the morphine was did not have the same effect benefit as the as the placebo when they said it was morphine. <laughs> right. All right. Well, switching gears now a little bit to to ARFID. ARFID's been um, gaining in in popularity, I guess, shall we say, in the GI field or recognition of ARFID amongst patients with GI illnesses, um, both in pediatric and in adult populations. And I, I really would love for you to make that distinction between conditioned food sensitivity and ARFID. Um, what differentiates the two? And 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 how how would using that biopsychosocial approach be important? I mean, you've you've already given us such great information about really looking at the emotional response to food. How does that relate to ARFID as well? So I would see conditioned food sensitivity almost like a side effect of ARFID. So ARFID being the the avoidance side of it, and and simply right. just avoidance, which is has challenges in itself, but the side effect of that, if that avoidance continues and, and when we avoid, we're telling our, our brain, this is, 
this is dangerous. This is dangerous. I can't eat this. It's dangerous. So we're developing those associations. We're developing those danger cues. If that goes on long enough, we end up creating conditioned food sensitivity. And for the biopsychosocial model, I would say essential because so many clients, and I think in your, your gut feelings book, you guys did a great job of explaining this. I learned a lot from reading your book, but clients are often looking for that one physical cause of their, yes. their symptoms Absolutely. and the simple treatment for it. And sometimes that happens. So say somebody has celiac disease, chances are really good. A gluten-free diet is going to substantially improve their quality, their health and their quality of life. But for most clients that at least the clients that I see is it's multifactorial mm-hmm. and it's not just their, their symptoms aren't just caused by one thing. And therefore the, the answer is not just one treatment, but a variety of things, all which together don't cure them, but really improve their, their quality of life. So that needs to be looked at from a biological perspective. Like if, you know, if someone has, you know, physically driven food sensitivities, say for example, high FODMAP foods are bothering them, or they have celiac disease, or they have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or the whole variety of, of physically driven, you know, that that needs to be um, discovered ideally and worked on. But then there's also the the you know what we're the psychological aspect that we're that we've been talking about, and then you know the social the social aspect as all as as well. So it really it's a big picture rather than just this this fine one answer that clients are often searching for. You know, I don't think we defined ARFID. Do you want to tell us what ARFID is? So it's avoid restrictive food take disorder. Do I have that right? And it's traditionally classically been applied to uh, where there are um, selection, not biases, not by the word, but but, um, often with children where they are avoiding certain textures, particularly it tends to be more um, problematic in autism. And so that's how ARFID has been um, the classical, I guess, definition of it. But I would say it was at the last two or three years where this aversive subtype has, has been talked about where the avoidance is based on fear of damaging the body or symptoms. Does that, does that work for a definition? My understanding of it. (laughs) Right. And so it's just starting now where a lot of the tools that the screening tools, et cetera, for ARFID are really looking at more the childhood presentation of it. But you had said, Johanna, that um, uh, the, some researchers are looking at a good screening tool for the more right. diverse subtype. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting um, once it's validated um, as a screening tool for providers to use before making a recommendation of a restrictive diet or a dietary therapy in general. Um I think, you know, I'd love to hear both Dr. Drossman and your thoughts on, in my personal experience, it's, it's a kind of a pet peeve of mine is that providers, both primary care and GI, um, who are not well-educated in the role of diet, um, or the impact of diet therapies, um, both emotionally and physically on patients will just randomly choose and, and throw that out as a first line treatment, which isn't a bad thing but without any sort of context for it. Um, I remember a doctor telling me when I said that uh, my GI symptoms would really um, 
get worse when I had meat, beef or pork or chicken. And he said, I don't, don't eat meat. And then I remember thinking like, well, that's not a solution. Like, I mean, really, that's what I just don't eat meat, which is actually what I ended up doing was really avoiding all proteins, meat proteins, because I didn't know what else to do. And so I just think, you know, it's really important that a, that providers, both primary care and GI recognize the role of diet um, and the impact that a diet therapy can have on a patient before making that recommendation, doing some appropriate rudimentary screening of food anxieties, um, to, to see if that's a, an appropriate therapy option for the patient. And then of course, in my opinion, um, do making a recommendation to work with a, with a registered dietitian, because otherwise you end up with patients who are over restricting, who develop RFID, who have all of these sorts of things that possibly could have been avoided with just a little bit of screening and, and guidance from, from a professional in this area. I don't know what you both think about that. Well, I think I think clinicians who are not educated in this area do what I would call Dr. Orphan, which is <laughs> the, the new term, Dr. Orphan. <laughs> what happened with you? Um, the doctor is trying to resolve the issue by telling you not to eat the thing that you said bothers you. Right. Without realizing that they're enabling the situation of food restriction. Absolutely. And, and basically you you don't want when you have these GI conditions, you don't want to keep restricting foods. You may want to identify things that might be culprits, but you don't, as a generic way, restrict. You right. just, like with FODMAP, you do selective reintroduction. You don't right. just take them off everything. And that's where the problem happens in our medical society with yeah. doctors that are not educated about this. For sure. And I, I agree, yeah, with with there has, and not just with, with RFID for screening, but also you, you guys, uh, your organization published a great article on the need for screening for all eating disorders. Mm. And so whether that eating disorder is driven by a fear of weight gain. So as an example, orthorexia, or it's driven by a fear of bodily harm, um, and symptoms. So RFID and conditioned food sensitivity exam, um, that's not a, a eating disorder, but anyways, driven by, um, I meant to say RFID and orthorexia, sorry. If, so if the client has, is currently suffering from those conditions or has a past history, restriction is, I won't say inappropriate, but it has to be approached extremely carefully by somebody who's very knowledgeable, ideally a very specialized gastroenterologist or a dietitian or a um, psychologist, because Restriction can reactivate an eating disorder. Yes. And, you know, I admire people who are able to move past, say, anorexia nervosa, for example. That's tough. That's a really tough condition to develop a positive relationship with food. And it's very unfortunate when careless diet recommendations plunge somebody back into those challenges. Absolutely. Absolutely. And hopefully, you know, as, as more um, patients are able to access a multidisciplinary approach to their health care um, with a, a physician and a dietitian and a behavioral therapist working in, in a, in a joint fashion, that's when you're going to get the best results for the patient. 
Okay. So, um, what do you, Wendy, what do you wish that primary care docs knew or what patients, what you wish patients knew about, um, conditioned food sensitivity or resources for their patients? Um, where can they go to find out more? So one of the things I would say, if someone is thinking, well, that describes me is just really know that it's an easy trap to fall into. This process of unraveling it all takes a great deal of self-awareness, but more so self-compassion. I think if we have self-awareness without self-compassion, we end up just beating ourselves up. So Mm. knowing it's easy to fall into the trap, it's not something that you did, it's not something you weren't weak, it's just something that kind of unconsciously happens when you're suffering with mysterious illnesses. And for resources is if people are interested, I have a free ebook on my website that just is is a summary. And then we have our fast freedom program. I would also suggest if it's and on, on the ebook has a, the clients often ask like, well, do I have conditioned food sensitivity or don't I, it's not an, it's not a black and white issue. I, I would, in my mind, at least, conditioning is likely a part of many physiological processes. Mm-hmm. And probably all, all food sensitivity have a component of conditioning, whether that's a minor component that really doesn't make any significant difference or a major component that it does. The question is, well, how does it affect me? And I do have in the ebook, I do have a self-assessment, but if I had to boil it down to one thing, I would suggest is when you when you think about food, you eat or you think about food, be aware of your body. Do you, do you, do you tighten and and restrict? That would indicate that you have some negative associations with food. If you think about food and you think, oh yeah, lunchtime is coming. Oh, I could have, you know, I could have this and that. Even if you're on a restriction, you say, oh yeah, there's that uh, leftover past I have last night. Oh, that'll be tasty. Yeah. And you feel happy and excited. Chances are God, you have very good associations with food. So that is one, um, you know, if I had to pick of, of the, the, the assessment, that would be the one thing um, that I would say is an indication to what your relationship with food food is. So, and really the process, I think, so the process of working through conditioned food sensitivity is really awareness very much like cognitive behavior therapy, awareness of what you're, you're, of when you're making automatic assumptions and questioning those assumptions. It's a great process to go through regardless of in the end, whether you um, expand your diet, you know, whether you, you go through the process and think, yeah, you know what, I do indeed need to restrict these foods or whether you say, no, I don't. And you start expanding that, that awareness is, is key. And so the behavioral psychologists are expert in helping clients develop awareness about their bodies and their, their thoughts that around those, around their symptoms. There's not a ton. So in summary, there's not a ton of resources because this is really just a new area, but those are some of the things that I could suggest for clients. That's great. I, I appreciate that. And, and for our listeners, we'll put a link to Wendy's website and to her ebook in our program notes for this episode. Dr. Drossman, any last words for our listeners? 
Um, I, I think I, 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 it's really reiterating what we've been saying, but the concept of integrated care um, is, is relevant here for psychologists and dietitians. Uh, we're starting to create a network of psychologists and dietitians that we can pick to with our patients to help us along the way. First of all, it, it allows the care to be to some degree partitioned yet integrated. We often talk with the dietitians or the psychologists to manage the care together. And I think the patients feel the benefit of being part of a team. And I think we would then avoid the doctor orphan for a lot of people where they're making inappropriate recommendations if there's a dietitian working with, with them and with the doctor. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think that's the key right there. All right. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you about your work and about this condition. If you have any questions for Wendy, feel free to send us an email. We'll pass those questions along and have Wendy get back to you when she's able. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Gut Feelings. We'll see you again next time. Take care, everyone. Bye now. Thanks, Wendy. Nice yeah, thank you, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to Gut Feelings a Rome Foundation Drossman Care podcast series. Join us again next month for another episode with a topic related to disorders of gut-brain interaction and the patient-provider relationship. Learn more about our two books, Gut Feelings, Disorders of Gut-Brain Interaction and the Patient-Provider Relationship, and our new book just released July 2022, Gut Feelings, The Patient Story. Both books make fantastic resources for both providers and patients alike, and can be purchased on our website at theromefoundation.org slash gut feelings. See you again next time.